0: Good morning. I love it when my boys make me look good at the front (laughs) with the right answers. I wish the right answers came at home more often. Obedience is such a simple concept to understand, and yet obedience is one of the hardest things to practice day to day, isn't it? It all comes down to that simple thing. Will we obey or will we disobey? Will we say yes to God or will we say no to God? And that the pathway to life or death hangs in the balance. And so this morning we're going to be looking at this concept a little bit more as we're continuing in our sermon series this morning on prepared to give an answer. And so I would invite you now to bow with me and let's pray together. Father God, you are a good God. And we declare that you are worthy of our praise, you are worthy of our worship, and you are deserving of our very lives. And so this morning we again, Father, come to you and we confess where we have fallen short, where even in this past week we have said no instead of yes, and we ask for your forgiveness, and we ask, Lord, that you would cleanse us and set us again on your path, that we might follow you completely and obey you in everything. And so help us, Lord. This morning, we come to you with many emotions as a church family. We come with some heaviness, Lord, as we think of the passing of Mrs. Harms. We, as a family in this church congregation, want to just pause this moment to say thank you, Lord, for her life. Thank you, Lord, for her faithful testimony of your grace. Thank you for her faithful service to this church family and to the many who are sitting here today and the many represented around us in this community and so father even as our hearts are heavy there is uh, not not uh, a despair for we have a great and living hope that when she closed her eyes she awoke in your presence and that you have welcomed her by faith in Jesus Christ. And so comfort us, and comfort the family especially, with that great and living hope that we have in you, that she is at home, her prayer has been answered. And so, Father, we simply ask now that for those who will mourn her passing and for all of us who will miss her deeply, we pray that you would be a real and near comfort and be with us. Walk with us, Lord, and help us to remember her testimony of faithfulness, that we too may walk faithfully with you for however many years you give us. Father, this morning we also come to you with hearts with joy and gratitude. We, we thank you, Father, that you have used the efforts of this church and the many in this community who have uh, worked together to bring a, a refugee family to this community. And we thank you, Lord, that Zoe and Felicia and William are here with us to worship you this morning. And we give you great praise and thanksgiving for answering their prayers, that they are here in a Christian community with other believers and that they can start a new life and a home here in Clarny, Manitoba. We thank you, God, for this fresh start and that we can be a part of it. So bless them richly, we pray. We pray as well for the other family from, from the Congo that is still in Africa and we pray that you would have your hand upon them as well and the preparations yet to come. Bless, Father, we ask, as you already have. And now, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is light into our dark world, and it makes sense of all of our confusion. And so, Father, as we again enter your word, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us, open our understanding, open our minds, and open our hearts to receive, and our feet to obey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today we are continuing our series entitled, Prepared to Give an Answer. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, we are instructed, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. In this series, we are studying the field of apologetics. Last week, we learned that This term, apologetics, is used to describe giving reasons for our faith or making a defense of the faith. Last week we learned that though apologetics can be used to help remove barriers to people placing faith in God and in Jesus Christ, we must recognize that we cannot argue someone into placing their faith in God. For though it appears to be an intellectual battle, it is actually a spiritual battle. For those without Christ, the scripture tells us, have had their eyes and their minds blinded to the truth. And what seems so evident and obvious to us is unclear and dark and murky to them. And so, as we engage the non-believer with the truth of God's word, we must recognize and depend upon the work of the Holy Spirit to speak through us and to work in the mind and the heart of the one to whom we are speaking. And we must always remember to do so with gentleness and respect. And we also looked at the three primary categories of people that we will be engaging with who have not yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ. There are the cynics, the skeptics, and the seekers. And we then studied how Jesus responded to their questions. We saw that first, he was not swayed by empty praise. And so too, we must resist the urge to just fit in so that people will like us. We must resist the urge to not answer from the truth of God's word, so that we might be friends with them. No, we must resist that and speak the truth. Secondly, we saw that Jesus discerned their motives. He discerned that their motives were less than pure. They were seeking to trap him. And so too, we must prayerfully, and guided by the Holy Spirit, we must discern the motives of the person who is questioning us, so that we may answer wisely. And thirdly, we saw that Jesus answered their questions by using an analogy. And so too, when we answer, we must seek to answer their questions using examples they can understand, by way of analogy, or using a story with something that they can connect with. And so that was last week's introduction to our series, and now this week we are going to look at some of the big questions that many non-believing people have, and I do so with two purposes in mind. The first purpose is to help prepare you, the believer, in how to reply to these types of questions. And my second purpose for this message this morning is to explain to those of you here today or listening later who are genuinely perplexed by these big questions and desire an explanation from God's Word. And so the first question we are going to address this morning is a large one Why does God allow evil? Why? does God allow evil? Now when most people ask this type of a question, what they're really getting at is something like this. If God is all-loving that he would desire our good, so if God is all-loving and he is all-powerful that he could do whatever he pleases, then why doesn't he just intervene and stop all of the evil from happening? If he loves us and he wants our good, if he's capable of providing our good, then why doesn't he just swoop in and make it happen, stop all of the evil? So, for instance, examples will be asked such as these, why didn't he just stop Adolf Hitler and the Holocaust? Why didn't he intervene to stop the genocides that happened in Cambodia and in Rwanda? Why does he not step in to stop children who right this very moment are being exploited as sex slaves in Southeast Asia and elsewhere? Why doesn't he protect the innocent from being killed in the crossfire of war? If he is able, then why doesn't he just stop all of the civil wars that are happening in the world right now so that all of the millions of refugees can go home and live in peace? These are the types of questions that many, many people are asking. I once had a conversation with someone who believed in God but had deep misgivings, about him because of this very issue. You see, this individual had grown up in the church. They had grown up with faith in God, believing in him and his goodness. But then as an adult, he had once visited a children's hospital. And there on the palliative care ward of this children's hospital, he had seen the worst cases. He described, he saw disfigured children who had been burned horrifically in fires, who had been lost limbs in car crashes. He saw another ward filled with terminally ill children who had various types of cancer and other illnesses, who had very little time left to live. And there, seeing all of this suffering of these innocent children and seeing their plight, the only thing that crossed his mind was the question, why would God permit these innocent children to suffer like this? And the answer is simple yet it is difficult. The answer is summarized in two words. Free will. Free will. And so I began to explain to him that God had not caused the suffering of those children. It is the sin of mankind which is to to blame for their suffering. It is not God. God is the one we look to who is providing hope and healing. God is the reason that there is a hospital and those who are there to care for them. God is not responsible for their suffering. No, God is there to bring comfort. And so I went on to explain to him the beginning of evil and where sin and suffering came from. And so I will do my utmost to explain it to you today as well from God's own word. To begin this journey, we have to go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me this morning. We're going to look at a very familiar story, one we just saw in the children's feature this morning. It's the story that really explains everything, and it explains right who we are and where we are today. Chapters 1 and 2, we know the narrative. God creates the universe with his spoken word. At his command, the world and everything in it comes to be. There is nothing, and then there is everything. And he looks at his creation as it unfolds before his eyes, and he says, it is good. But he saves the best for last. In chapter 1, verse 26 of Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now I want you to notice first that God made man to be like him. God made man in his image, meaning that to be like him, man is capable of free thought and free will. The second thing I want you to take note of is that God then gives this free-thinking, free-choosing man authority to rule over the entire earth and everything in it. Now, according to God's design, man's rule, his dominion over the earth, was to be done in partnership with God. They would walk and talk together in a face-to-face relationship as they subdued the earth and filled it with their offspring. This was to be done in tandem with God, in partnership. And we see a picture of that, that they would walk together in the garden in the cool of the evening. And so then having made man as the pinnacle of his creation, setting him in a position of authority over the entire earth, God looks again at all that he has made and he declares, it is very good. It is very good. Not just sort of good, not just a little bit good, very good. And when God declares that something is very good, who is there that can argue with him? Who is there who can contradict God when God declares that something is very good? No one. God has set the standard of perfection, and when God says it is very good, it is. And so in this very good world, there was no suffering, no disease, no injustice, no violence, and no death. In short, there was no evil. It is perfection. But then in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, we see God do something peculiar, is the best word I can come up with. It seems out of place. It seems odd. And we read this, the Lord God took the man, he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, why the tree? Why the tree? Why put it there in the first place, into this very good world? Why take the risk that, remember, free-thinking, free-choosing man might actually exercise his free will and choose to eat the forbidden fruit? Why risk it? let's think about that for a moment. Though you are free to ignore me and to think about something else if you like, that is your choice. But I invite all of you to choose to keep following along with me and let's think about this. Remember we're free thinking. Notice the line in verse 16 where God says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You are free. Now let's suppose for a moment that we erase the next line about not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's imagine just for a moment that God never put the tree there. It was never in the garden. And God says to them, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. What kind of freedom would that be if there is no alternative choice? It's like the old story of Henry Ford telling a customer. You can buy any color of car you like, so long as it's black. Right, It's the illusion of choice, but what choice is it if there's only one? Choice, by very necessity, by very definition, demands an alternative. It's like when I ask my son, Theodore, do you want to start getting ready for bed? And he, of course, replies, No, I don't want to. (laughs) That was my best imitation. And then I reply with, While I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. Now, I had given Theo the illusion of choice by asking the question Do you want to start getting ready for bed? But in reality, he had no choice. He had to start getting ready for bed. You see, that's not true freedom, because where there is no choice, there is no freedom. God did not just present Adam with the illusion of choice, it was a real choice. You see, God desired an intimate, face-to-face relationship with Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. But God also desired them to choose that relationship with him in return. God did not desire robots programmed only to do one thing, and that is obey. He desired free thinking, free choosing people to exercise that free will and to choose to obey him. And so God decided to give Adam and Eve the choice to choose him or reject him. He gave them the choice to obey or disobey, and it had to be a real choice. For in order to be truly free to walk with God, the choice to walk away from him had to be equally real. And so if God said, obey me, and Adam replied with, no, I don't want to, (laughs) then God was not going to violate Adam's free will by saying, well, I'm not asking, I'm telling. No, God would honor the choice of Adam. No matter how bad the consequences, no matter how far-reaching the effect of that choice, God would not violate man's free will. He would let Adam decide, come what may. And so the tree was planted, and the command was given, don't eat, for if you do, you will surely die. A real choice with real consequences. Obey, and you will live, and you will enjoy all of the good things that I have laid out before you, like a banquet. Obey, and you will live. Disobey, and you will die. And it was at that moment that the possibility for evil came into existence. God did not create evil, but through the ability to choose against him, the possibility for evil came to be. C.S. Lewis, a great apologist of a previous generation, addressed this very subject in his book, The Problem of Pain. He wrote this, God chose to create a world in which we have free will. This fact has a number of implications that help explain the existence of pain and evil. First, in creating us with free will, God, in a sense, voluntarily surrendered his ability to control everything. Second, we can use our free will foolishly, which creates pain. You see, in giving Adam free thought and the power to choose, God entrusted him with tremendous power and responsibility over this new creation. And we know, of course, what happens next. Our great-great-grandpa Adam and our great-great-grandma Eve, they chose to disobey. They ate the fruit, and the world has been suffering the consequences ever since. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, the apostle Paul writes, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Everyone means everyone. It includes Danny Greening, it includes each and every one of you sitting here today. We are suffering the consequences of their choice. Free will is truly a powerful and frightening thing that comes with great responsibility. For by our free will, we can choose to bless God's name. We can choose to obey and live. And by that same free will, we can choose to curse God, disobey, and die. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 20. Spell out this in greater detail. The context of this passage, if you turn there with me, Deuteronomy chapter 30. The context of this passage is that God has nearly completed giving Moses all of the laws of God that they are to follow as a nation. And it's at the conclusion of giving all of the laws to Israel, it's at the conclusion of them, just as he did with Adam and the forbidden fruit, he sets a choice before Israel. And we read that choice clearly defined in verses 15 to 19. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity. Death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if you turn away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed." You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you may live and that your children may live. You see, God desires more than anything that we choose life. But he will not choose for us, nor will he force us to choose life. No matter the consequences, he will not force us. And when we disobey, when we choose the alternative, the consequences come in every form of evil devised by the mind and the heart of man. And our world is filled with every kind of evil. The untold suffering in the world as mankind fights and exploits and oppresses and kills one another is a direct result of mankind choosing the alternative. Eating the fruit, disobeying God, and we are bringing destruction and evil and sin and misery upon ourselves. No, it is not why does God allow. It is why do we as man choose to disobey. The responsibility does not lie with God, it lies with me. We are responsible for the suffering in the world today from our disobedience, from our sin, and it goes all the way back to great-great-granddaddy Adam and great-great-grandma Eve. They made the choice and it has affected us ever since. And I've always thought about that, and I've always. Just in my heart of hearts, in my mind, I always thought it wasn't fair that Adam and Eve got to choose for me. And that their one choice ruined it for the rest of us. I always thought that wasn't fair. But I've come to realize that fair has nothing to do with it. For simply, that is the way life is designed. One generation is always responsible for the next generation and those who follow after. We are responsible for our children and our children's children. Our choices will affect them, and they have no say in the matter. Think about it. It's all around us. The child born with FAS had no say in their mother's decision to drink while they were pregnant. Yet it affects them more than anyone else. The unborn child whose life is ended by abortion had no say in the matter. The millions of refugee children living in tents around the world with no home had nothing to do whatsoever with the decisions of their political or military leaders responsible for their situation. And yet, they suffer and they die because of the choices of others. And we see it all. And we cry out, God, why don't you stop it? And his reply is, I cannot stop it without violating man's free will to choose. And I will not do that. I will not force you to obey. And C.S. Lewis continues in his book, we can perhaps conceive of a world in which God corrected the results of our abuse of free will by his creatures at every moment. We could conceive that a wooden beam became soft as a blade of grass when wielded as a weapon. And the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it the sound waves that carry lies or insults through the radio. But such a world would be one in which wrong actions were impossible and in which, therefore, freedom of the will would be void. You see, if every time an evil person picks up a weapon to inflict evil upon someone else, to harm them or to kill them. If God were to stop the bullet in the gun, if God were to turn the, the sword into a, a pool noodle every time someone wielded it to such effect, that would be no choice, would it? He gives man the choice and man bears the terrible responsibility of the evil that we afflict and inflict upon one another. We are moral beings with moral choices And God says that we will answer to him for every choice that we make, but he will not force anyone to do good, and he will not take away from us the power to do evil. God calls, he beckons, but he does not overpower. God is working in silent and mysterious ways that often look frail and weak to us. We want him to just swoop in and intervene, but no, God is working underneath and behind in. Throughout everything. The analogy of on one side of a quilt, it's just a tangle of knots, and and it's just so unclear to us what's happening here. I can't see the beginning from the end. But when you turn the quilt around, on the other side is a beautiful picture. God sees the beautiful picture. We see the tangle of knots, and it's a mess to us. But trust me, God is working. God is working in the silent and mysterious ways of the Holy Spirit. That only he can understand. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. His ways beyond our ways. And so make no mistake about it. When we look at the evil and the suffering in the world today, the blame does not rest with God. The burden of responsibility lies at our feet. For like Adam, we have each been given free will. I have it and you have it. And so we too have tremendous power. Tremendous capacity for both good and for evil. And so if God won't violate man's free will, then we must ask, as a loving God who desires the good of all people, what has he done to help us in our plight? What has God done to save us from ourselves and the destruction that our sin deserves? Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul continues, Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. You see, just as it took only one man's disobedience to bring death to everyone, thanks a lot, Adam, it took only one man's obedience To bring life to everyone. And this one man's name is Jesus Christ, and all praise and honor and glory goes to him. For he has reversed the curse. Death and the sting of it has been removed through his victory. One man brought sin, and one man brings life. And so choose life that you may live, the Lord declares. Choose life. And all of the blessings of God are yours, not just for today, but for eternity and the kingdom which is yet to come. And so because of him, we have life. God sent his only son to stand in for us, to take our place, to take our punishment. And while we were still shaking our fist at heaven saying, no, no, I don't want to. God said, okay, I won't force you. I'm going to make another way. And he sent another man, a perfect man, his own son. And then that one man said, yes, father, yes, to your perfect will. And he said, even though if there were another way that I would not have to suffer to drink this cup, not my will, but thine be done. And he said yes to his father. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 11 declares, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now the only choice that we are left with is this. Will we bow to Jesus willingly now? Or will we be compelled to bow to him when he returns with all of the angels of heaven to judge the earth's evil and to stop it once and for all? This verse declares that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Those who choose it in this life will receive salvation, and those who are forced to declare it when He returns with all of His glory will enter into judgment and will receive exactly what their sins deserve. The only thing that stands between us and judgment is God's wonderful grace. We don't buy it, we don't earn it, it is a gift. And all we can do is receive it. It stands between us and God's righteous wrath. It is our shelter with the grace of Jesus Christ. Choose life and you may live. That is God's desire for you. Make no mistake. God is not responsible for the problem of evil. He is responsible for salvation and hope and healing. And he declares his desire. Choose life. Choose Walk with him. And let me just say that right now, that choice to you sitting here today, listening elsewhere, that choice may seem small right now. I suspect that Adam's choice that day to eat the fruit may have appeared trivial at the time as well. It didn't seem like such a big deal. He looked at it, oh, yeah, it is good to eat. I'm going to take a bite. And the consequences were not on his mind. He just looked at the momentary pleasure it appeared trivial but make no mistake your choice just as adam's choice did has tremendous power more power than you even realize the name stanislav petrov stanislav petrov it probably means nothing to you you've likely never even heard it before and if you did you probably can't remember what it's linked to But whether you know his name or not, you owe Stanislav Petrov your life. Why? Because on September 26, 1983, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov of the Soviet Air Defense Forces narrowly averted a full-out nuclear war with the United States. Just three weeks earlier, the Soviet military had shot down Korean Airlines Flight 007, and so tensions with the United States were dangerously high and there were fears of an all-out shooting war taking place. Everything had been raised to DEFCON level two. The missiles were fueled and ready to be fired. And into this tense political climate, Petrov was the duty officer at the command center for the OCO nuclear early warning system. When the system reported that an intercontinental ballistic missile followed by another one, and then up to five more were being launched from the United States, heading directly for the Soviet Union. Each of these seven missiles would be capable of carrying multiple nuclear warheads, raining down fire and nuclear holocaust upon Moscow and dozens of other cities. They would arrive in mere minutes. Petrov's protocol demanded he report the launch to his superiors immediately, But as he looked at his monitor, in his gut, he believed that the computers had malfunctioned. But what would he do? He knew if he reported it, almost certainly a retaliatory strike would be launched. But if he failed to report it and he was wrong, his nation would be doomed. Petrov later said, I had obviously never imagined that I would ever face this situation. It was the first, and as far as I know, also the last time that such a thing has ever happened. And he decided, as he stared at the screen with the blips showing intercontinental ballistic missiles heading towards his nation, he decided in that moment to go with his gut. He judged it to be a false alarm, and he didn't report it to his superiors. Stanislav Petrov made the right choice. Petrov has said he does not know that he should regard himself as a hero for what he did that day. In an interview for the film, The Man Who Saved the World, Petrov says, all that happened didn't matter to me. It was my job. I was simply doing my job, and I was the right person at the right time. That's all. My wife, for ten years, knew nothing of the incident. And so when I went home that night, she asked me, so what did you do? And my reply had been, nothing. I did nothing. One person, one choice, can shape the world. Stanislav Petrov's one choice, for all intents and purposes, saves civilization as we know it from nuclear holocaust. One man, one choice, either good or evil. We have tremendous power. And even if we're not in a missile control room with that type of power under our fingertips... Heaven and hell, eternity, is hanging in the balance of our choices, and God will honor our choices. He will not decide for us, but He desires more than anything that we choose life. So, what will you choose this day? Will you choose life? The choice is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this day and this assembly, we with one heart and one voice, we declare that we choose life. We choose the life that you have so graciously and mercifully provided for us through the one man who reversed the curse, Jesus Christ. And by his name, the one and only name where there is salvation, we to t- t- this day declare, you are our life. We have no life apart from you. For in you we live and move and think and act and have our being. For you have come to save us and to set us free from sin and death and evil. And so this day we choose life. And this day, Father, we recommit ourselves to being your hands and feet, to choosing life on behalf of others, to reverse the curse that wherever there is heartache, wherever there is suffering, wherever there is evil, that the power you have given us to choose to stand against it, Lord, we choose to stand in the gap. We choose to speak out against violence. We choose to speak out against suffering, and even more, to be the hands that would bring comfort and to bind the broken, and the weary. And so, Father, help us this day. Help us to know how to answer to those who will ask questions such as these, that we could do so well, that we could do so with wisdom, and that we could do so with gentleness and respect by your Holy Spirit, that we could yet be used by you to persuade and to bring others to the place where they too can choose life. And this life is found only in you. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray for the salvation of many. We pray, O Lord, that wars will cease, that famine will end. We pray, O Lord, that your kingdom will come and that it will be established and that you will reign forever and ever. And until that day comes in all of its fullness, we choose to live this day in the reality that it is coming and it has already been established in our hearts through faith. So walk with us as we go forth from here this day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.